Hi, this is AJJ Studios here, and today we will discuss the things they carried on our pilot episode of Book Thoughts with the Boys. Thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. I'm Jayton Damrit, and here are my co-hosts, Adrian Russo and Joel Ryan. Hello. Hey. This critically acclaimed novel by Tim O'Brien exposes its readers to the harsh reality soldiers faced during the Vietnam War. These rough experiences not only subject the soldiers to an unknown terrain in an enemy land, but also to emotional and mental tribulations. So let's get started. things they carried really has two different meanings. The first and more obvious meaning is elucidated in the first chapter of the book, which describes the literal equipment each soldier had to carry. This also included personal effects the soldiers chose to carry, such as maybe a photo of a loved one or a pair of lucky stockings. But as the book progresses, the second meaning is revealed. This is the mental and emotional baggage that each soldier carries due to the horrors and atrocities they have seen and committed. Today, we're going to give you a summary of the book as well as elaborate on the things they carried and delve deeper into some analytical examinations of how these experiences affected the soldiers in both good and bad ways. Hey Adrian, could you tell us a little bit about how this book is organized? Of course! The novel is split into short stories rather than being one cohesive narrative. Each chapter shows a different aspect of the Vietnam experience, whether that is related to the characters' love lives, their friendships, their losses, or other aspects that many often do not consider in war. We believe that O'Brien chose to write the book in this way to better represent how the human mind remembers the past, not in one fluid memory, but instead in fragments, disconnected from each other. Some of these chapters are told in the moment by O'Brien, as he felt them during the events. In contrast, other stories are told as reflections from a more mature O'Brien, who has had time to consider both the reasons and repercussions of the experiences. The variety of stories that O'Brien chooses to include convey a wide spectrum of different moods, not just those that may be stereotypical of a war novel. Despite the bleak nature of the entire situation, there are moments of peace and beauty that exist in parallel to the horrors of war. O'Brien does an excellent job of illuminating the full dimensionality of Vietnam. Enough for now on the structure of the novel. Jane, can you tell us about the first chapter of this book? Sure. The first chapter the things they carried, shares the same title as the entire novel. So after reading the exposition of the novel, I began to ask myself, did O'Brien do that on purpose, or was he just not creative? It would be easier to take the simple approach and say O'Brien was just too lazy, but that is not the truth at all. The first chapter sets the precedent for the following pages. It establishes very early on that the novel is about fantasies created by the soldiers showcased in the novel. It also illuminates to us, as the audience, that O'Brien intends to elaborate on the things the soldiers carried in Vietnam. This chapter introduces us to Lieutenant Jimmy Cross, who carries an infatuation for a girl named Martha. O'Brien explains the love Jimmy has for Martha is like a one-way street. Jimmy has a desire to be with Martha, but Martha does not reciprocate those feelings. Hmm. 
Sounds like a real Liz Mr. Darcy situation. Yeah, it does. After expounding on Jimmy Cross's love life, O'Brien displays a prominent transition which relates to future transitions throughout the novel. The chapter switches from describing emotional baggage to physical baggage. O'Brien explains some of the gear all soldiers must carry while at war, such as magazines of ammunition, a ground sheet, and an M16 assault rifle. That already sounds way too heavy for me, let me tell you. But the soldiers have to carry even more depending on their rank or position within the unit. For example, the medic carries bandages and malaria tablets. What surprised Adrian, Joel, and I the most about chapter 1 was that a dude literally gets shot in the head within the first 10 or so pages of the book. You heard me right. A member of Jimmy Cross's unit gets shot after coming back from a quick bathroom break in the woods. This unexpected death shocks the reader to the reality of war, much like the soldiers were shocked. We learn that O'Brien's objective is not only inform us of the realities of war, but to tap into our emotions and help us feel the realism of war. In the complete view of Chapter 1, the audience sees why O'Brien named Chapter 1 the things they carry. He named it so because it embodies the pages to come in the rest of the novel. After reading the first chapter, we were very interested in the book, but what sparked a lot of our interest was the eighth chapter, The Sweetheart of Song Trebong. Joel, can you explain why we like the chapter so much and how it adds to the novel entirely? Certainly. This one's a doozy. This chapter is a story told to Tim O'Brien by Rat Kylie, a medic friend he has. When the story begins, O'Brien tells us to take the story with a grain of salt because it may not be exactly truthful, but we'll touch on that a little later. For now, we'll take the story at face value. Rat Kylie talks about a time he was transferred to a small medical detachment in you guessed it, Song Trebong. One night, the NCO, Eddie Diamond, makes a joke about shipping a girl to the detachment, but the soldier, Mark Fossey, takes it seriously and he actually pays for a plane to take his girlfriend, Marianne Bell, to Song Trebong. When she arrives, she is very much unprepared for Vietnam. Only 17 years old, she comes wearing a pink sweater and white culottes, and she's amazed by everything she sees. Marianne seems almost oblivious to the war. Swimming in a river where she could be shot, and insisting upon visiting a village controlled by the Viet Cong. Even so, she boosts morale as she has a bubbly personality and is very interested in learning what's going on. She even begins working with the medics, cuts her hair, and stops wearing jewelry to fit in. But then, Marianne starts to become serious and distant, but she claims she's never been happier and even talks about wanting to live in Vietnam. She begins coming home late and even disappears at night to go on raids with the Green Berets stationed at Song Trapong. Her strange behavior climaxes when she comes back from a raid with emotionless eyes and a necklace of severed tongues. She says that she loves Vietnam and wants to eat the whole country and to have it inside of her. Ugh, creepy. I know, right? Unfortunately, Rat Kylie got transferred right after that event. Talk about anticlimactic. Luckily, Rat heard the rest of the story from Eddie Diamond. Marianne kept going on patrols nightly, not even bringing a weapon sometimes. She started disappearing for hours, then days, and then she was just gone. They never even found a body, but the Green Berets say she's still out there, somewhere in the dark. Now that's a lot to unpack. First off, this is a pretty clear case of irony. When a young, bubbly civilian girl comes to a war zone to see her boyfriend, you wouldn't exactly expect her to become a soldier and go on nightly raids, and you especially wouldn't expect her to make a necklace of tongues. Additionally, 
Marianne is an important symbol for the concept of American arrogance during the war. The U.S. involved itself in the Vietnam War when it didn't need to because it wanted to be the hero and country that stopped the spread of communism. To reflect this, when Marianne first arrives, she is way too interested in the war, even though she has no real business in being in it, as she's a civilian. She also treats her trip to Song Trabang as a vacation, obliviously touring and playing in the enemy-infested country. This shows the original idea that the Americans had when entering the war, that it would be easy and they couldn't be hurt. But as she develops, Marianne really begins to see the true nature of the war as horrific. This depicts the Americans' public realization of the atrocities committed in Vietnam by the soldiers. Then she becomes crazy, saying she wants to consume the country. This shows America's true goal in the war, which wasn't just saving the Vietnamese. They wanted to prevent the spread of communism because it would threaten their status as the most powerful country. Vietnam wasn't a nation to be saved. It was a pawn in America's game to stay on top. Whoa, that was a lot. And maybe it's not 100% true, but it felt that way to Tim O'Brien after experiencing the war in person. We'll touch more on that later. For now, how about we hear Adrian's take on his favorite chapters? Finally, when I read the chapters The Man I Killed in Ambush, I was stunned. O'Brien demonstrates two different ways of recounting the same story, using different diction and points of view. In The Man I Killed, we learn about the death of a Vietnamese soldier, described as a slim, dead, and almost dainty young man. It is later revealed that this man was killed by the narrator, Tim O'Brien, although it's kind of hard to understand this until you read the following chapter called Ambush. In The Man I Killed, O'Brien describes an almost surreal and out-of-body experience, notably omitting the word I or any reference to himself. He's distancing himself from the situation, as if he is only an audience member of these horrors. O'Brien does not speak throughout this chapter either. He is only spoken to. He is obsessed with the man he has killed. Specifically, he is obsessed with the man's physical features, those affected by the blast of the grenade, but also those which have been preserved. He is also obsessed with the man's life. He considers the simple life the man most likely lived in his small village, and the potential life he will no longer live because of O'Brien's actions. He is scarred by what he has done, but he doesn't show any of this emotion in this chapter. But you said something about ambush. How does that have anything to do with the man I killed? I was just getting there. The next chapter, Ambush, materializes in a completely different perspective, despite the fact O'Brien wrote them about the same event. In Ambush, O'Brien claims he is running for his daughter, and because of this writes in a much more narrative style. The tone of this chapter is quite different. The situation is presented as a tragedy that O'Brien remembers well and continues to cope with decades later. This is in contrast to the tone of The Man I Killed, which conveys shock and dismay at what has happened. O'Brien demonstrates the variability of writing style, and how that variability provides us with two different interpretations of the same story. The tone shift allows the reader to understand how O'Brien felt when he wrote this novel. Another literary element that is important for us to gain a better understanding of the things they carried is imagery, presented in the field. Well said, Adrian. Thanks. The next chapter that holds literary significance is In the Field. This part of the novel recounts the search for the recently deceased Kiowa. Previously described in the novel, Kiowa was killed in an onslaught of enemy explosives. The next day, the soldiers discover Kiowa has died. The imagery of the field in the dreary weather ties into the tone and conjuring a pathos intertwined with O'Brien's text. Immediately, the novel describes the setting to be very rainy and cold. 
Generally, when people think of rain and cold weather, they relate that to sadness. That is true here. Death in war, even though it is so common, is still tragic. After describing the weather, O'Brien describes the field on which the soldiers are standing in the moment of the chapter. O'Brien follows the soldiers' discovery that the field is literally composed of human waste. The field is a toilet. Isn't that nasty, Adrian? Yes, sir. That's pretty poopy. Nasty. Anyway, the way O'Brien describes the field is not in a passive tone. He puts a lot of emphasis on the way the field looks and smells. Also, O'Brien describes the removal of Kiowa's body in the atmosphere of emotion surrounding this event. After reading this, we decided that O'Brien does this on purpose, to establish a solid use of imagery in the novel. This imagery helps to relay the terrible feelings felt by the soldiers. The soldiers experience melancholy in regard to their recently deceased friend. Through O'Brien's imagery, pathos is elucidated. The reader can experience these emotions as well. Not only does O'Brien use quality imagery, but he also establishes a prominent relationship with fiction in the novel. Joel, will you elaborate on this some more? Absolutely. On the title page of this novel, O'Brien wrote, A work of fiction. This is a very important inclusion that you may have missed your first time reading the book. I'll be honest, I know I did. Reading each chapter, I took the stories Tim O'Brien relayed at face value. But then I got to a chapter called Good Form. In this one-page chapter, this bombshell of a chapter, O'Brien told us that aside from the fact that he actually served in the war, everything else is fake. Well, not exactly. None of it happened, but it felt like it did. Confusing? We thought so too. But it begins to make sense when he talks about the two kinds of truth. The happening truth and the story truth. The happening truth is real. The true events that occurred. The story truth is what he felt, what he wanted to say about the war, what he wanted the readers to feel. So in a way, it's also true. It's the true emotions experienced at that time. If you've ever seen the play called The Lifespan of a Fact, it's kind of like that. O'Brien is describing what he feels through these stories. There was never a Marianne, but he had his feelings about politics he wanted to convey. He never killed that boy on the trail, but he felt guilty just as if he did. I told you we'd come back to that. These story truths set the novel in the genre of fiction, but they still allow O'Brien to describe what really happened to him in the war, at least in one form. And I think the form he chose was a pretty good one. That was pretty deep. Adrian, can you go ahead and wrap this up for us? I know personally I'm not usually a fan of war novels. But this book brought a whole new meaning to the genre. O'Brien masterfully used symbolism, imagery, irony, genre, and other literary devices to tell his story. I believe this book's literary merit is well-deserved. The way O'Brien comments on history impacts us in a way that other war stories do not. Learning about the war in history class presents us with the facts, but the things they carried gives us insight on the real human emotions in war. Basically, we have come to the conclusion, this book really carried its own weight. Oh man, that was terrible. It wasn't that bad, but one thing we can agree on is, the book was pretty good. At least that's what the boys say. The, the boys. boys! 
This has been Book Thoughts with the Boys. Thanks for listening. And tune in for the next episode where we analyze Fahrenheit 451. Again. Again.